This is a diet of cabbage. What are the scenarios after the referendum? What might happen? Now this uh, is coming to you from the exotic location of uh, Barcelona Airport's departure lounge where I'm waiting for a plane having spent the day uh, at a workshop organised by uh, the Barcelona Institute for International Affairs and London School of Economics which was looking at this uh, question and uh, Seem like a, a good opportunity now to just kind of digest that, share that with you, and, and kind of give you a sense. Because I think one of the big questions that's not very clear in people's minds is, well, what does this vote mean? You know, we've talked in these other longer episodes, uh, and you can find the rest of those at uh, adartofbrussels.com. That uh, you know, we've looked at what's the EU, what's the relationship with the UK and uh, what about this referendum uh, itself. Um, But I haven't really talked so much about what the the different pathways might be as as we go along. So I want to try and structure this uh, by thinking about uh, the the two options about leaving, uh, about remaining as uh, outcomes and just think a little bit about the consequences for the UK uh, for the UK's relationship with the EU, um, but I think also uh, talking about the implication for the EU, um, that uh, quite aside from the UK's role in it, I think we do need to have a sense of what that, that means. And also uh, half an eye to the, the broader uh, geopolitical international picture. So let's start with the, the simpler one, the one that we probably can be more confident about, which is uh, a vote to remain. Now, uh, the moment, the polling suggests that's uh, the more likely outcome. But uh, what we've not really had a discussion about is uh, what does that mean? What does it look like? So uh, one of the difficulties in all of this is, uh, you know, when we say there's a a vote to remain, uh, is that a big majority? Is it a small majority? You know, what's the turnout like? All of these things add, add some complication. But if we assume that uh, we're kind of going for sort of... Uh, the, the current uh, likely uh, spread of votes, and we're looking at something which is a, a, a clear enough majority, you know, it's, it's maybe 55-45 in favour of Remain. And as, as a result, then we'd say that, you know, that result was, was pretty clear, you know, we had a decent turnout, and, uh, you know, it's not in the zone of ambiguity, and we can talk about that maybe at the end. So if we have that uh, clear majority uh, to remain, then uh, at one level nothing changes. The UK remains where it is uh, as a member state and uh, you know, we don't see uh, radical differences. Except we do see differences, that things do change. Because one of the consequences of a Remain vote is that David Cameron's settlement, uh, which he agreed back in March, actually comes into effect. That's one of the things we talked about back then, that you know, the agreement says that this doesn't happen until the UK confirms that it wants to remain a member state, i.e. after the referendum. Now, uh, as the workshop uh, today was uh, discussing, that uh, that doesn't change very much uh, materially. Uh, the only real change that takes place is that the UK... Uh, can start the process of uh, limiting uh, in-work uh, benefits to EU migrants, which uh, might not be terribly easy, but it's certainly uh, an option that 
uh, I think they're going to want to pursue uh, as a, a sign that uh, you know this wasn't just a, a dead letter uh, in the agreement. And then there will be various other proposals that will start the slow legislative process and uh, you know uh, kind of roll on. However, um, you know if if it doesn't change much. Uh, formally in the relationship. Uh, I think we also do need to recognise that it does mean that the UK has even more of a special status than it currently does. And if you listen to the uh, podcast, uh, the second of these uh, Diet of Cabbage uh, pieces, where I talked about the UK and the EU, you know, we already do have a very uh, particular uh, relationship because of the assorted opt-outs and uh, special uh, arrangements that have been made for the UK. In terms of what it means for uh, British politics, I think you know you might expect a, a number of consequences. First of all, clearly it uh, reinforces David Cameron's position. It means that he will uh, have a much freer hand to decide uh, quite how he's going to end his time as uh, leader of the Tory party and, by extension, as prime minister. Uh, that. Uh, he then is in the driving seat for deciding about how he pulls uh, the different arms of his party back together again, you know, whether that can be done without uh, too much trouble. Uh, does he give some sceptics uh, cabinet posts? Does he uh, banish them from the party and put them into the wilderness? wilderness? Uh, it's more likely the first one because uh, there are so many sceptics that it's hard not to uh, involve them in uh, various ways. So um, you would uh, see that uh, party politically uh, it means we kind of go to something a bit like uh, the status quo uh, anti you know, the situation beforehand. But, you know, uh, the Tory party has been fairly uh, brutal uh, amongst itself about how it uh, uh, manages this particular issue in the referendum. And so uh, there's going to be some uh, reckoning uh, that comes along. Uh, it might potentially affect the, uh, the shape of the uh, leadership contest that takes place uh, when Cameron does step down, but clearly the sceptics uh, amongst the party uh, might find themselves in a weaker position than uh, otherwise uh, would be the case. Economically, uh, you're going to see uh, uh, no real change that uh, the contingency plans that uh, businesses have put in place in case the UK leaves uh, will remain contingency plans and uh, life does very much go on as normal. There's no big bonus from it, more there's a, an avoidance of uh, uh, economic uh, disruption. So it's, it's not uh, a big uh, feel-good factor. You might see a strengthening of the pound on international markets, uh, particularly if uh, the result looks uh, strong and stronger than the polling has uh, suggested. Uh, that uh, you know, markets tend to price these things in quite early. But really, economically, there's not uh, a big upside benefit to this. It's, it's more about avoiding uh, the downside uh, risks. Which leaves the EU. Um, one of the striking things uh, from this workshop and the, the discussion, this was a mixture of academics and practitioners, uh, who were looking at it not with a particular agenda but just trying to understand what it might mean. 
One of the things that they identified and uh, which is going to be an issue is that this whole referendum has used up quite a lot of the goodwill uh, that the UK might have enjoyed that uh, it's it's really not clear uh, whether uh, a remain vote is taking us back to where we were or whether it's making things better or whether it's making things uh, worse and there's clearly uh, uh, a, a clear area of uh, ambiguity uh, about this. So let's just think about why that might be. On the positive side, uh, a yes vote reaffirms the UK's place. It means that the issue, assuming that it's a decent majority, is put to bed for uh, the foreseeable future, although you know, I think we've learned enough now to know that nothing is forever. Uh, it helps uh, other member states who might be facing uh, domestic pressure to uh, hold their own referendum to say, well, look, when you know the British don't want to leave, and uh, you know they're getting uh, very little for it, uh, so uh, why should we uh, uh, make any uh, further accommodation, uh, and why should we give you the vote? Because you know if even they don't want to go, you know why why would it be any different for you? So it might help ease uh, situations, but at the same time, uh, this has been uh, very clearly an unwanted distraction for the EU, for the other member states, who have very large number of other things that they've got to deal with, uh, not least the Eurozone uh, crisis, the immigrant crisis, uh, relations with uh, Russia, uh, climate change, all of these are big, big issues, and uh, they didn't choose any of those. But you know, this uh, uh, referendum has been very much uh, the self-inflicted wound, if you like. So, uh, you know, uh, patience and willingness, particularly if the UK uh, comes back after a, a Remain vote and says, "Well, now we want to," uh, you know push for change, you know, we've now got a mandate to, to push and reform the EU, that might not get much, uh, you know, uh, traction with uh, the rest of the European Council. So traditional British priorities, things like pushing for enlargement, for deregulation or for more free trade uh, agreements, uh, you know, they might find it harder to achieve that, even though, you know, certainly uh, deregulation and improving competitiveness is something that uh, everybody says that they want. So the, the, the kind of slight distancing that's taken place in recent years when other member states weren't sure if they should invest political capital in trying to uh, manage uh, their relationship uh, with uh, counterparts and, you know, deciding whether it's worth teaming up with the UK on things, uh, I think there's still going to be uh, a part of that, a hesitancy. And also, you know, because member states have been trying as much as possible to work without the UK or been reliant on them, they recognise that that's also possible. I don't want to overstate that, though, as a, as a, a problem. Uh, it's clear that the UK has been a uh, key partner uh, for many member states, uh, particularly those that have a more Atlanticist, uh, neoliberal bent uh, to their strategic and to their economic uh, approaches to the world, um, and that it is seen as a, a useful counterweight to Germany uh, and indeed to France. So uh, I think you will see that, that you know, the UK is still able to uh, have an influence. 
question is you know what's the the mood music around this is this a a new beginning uh or is this just more of the same and you know i think that comes down to uh government priorities uh certainly you you got to imagine that david cameron's not going to want to uh, uh reawaken uh party tensions about european issues certainly not as long as he's prime minister um what his successor might choose to do is a completely different matter If we look beyond the UK, uh, its relationship with the EU and the EU itself, then uh, Remain does look like a, a relatively stable option uh, geopolitically, that it reaffirms that the UK is uh, a key part of uh, the international system, that it's willing to engage and participate. Um, one of the interesting things that uh, was been noted by uh, Richard Whitman uh, from the University of Kent was that you know if there's been one constant uh, feature of the UK's foreign policy since the end of the Second World War, it's been precisely that it has built and participated in international institutions, uh, and a vote to leave would be a big change. So, uh, by contrast, uh, a vote to remain is a, a reaffirmation of the value of that, that fundamental approach. The, the the UK has taken that it's better to be on the inside, uh, shaping, influencing than it is to be on the outside. So, if we want to summarise what uh, a uh, a Remain vote looks like, uh, largely it looks the same. It comes with some consequences. It comes with some costs. It comes with some benefits. Uh, but uh, if you're looking for uh, the kind of the uncertainty that it's around this and this is another way of thinking about it you have relatively less uncertainty about what the world looks like for anybody uh, if we have a remain vote compared to what we have in uh, the case of a leave vote now that means that the costs might be much smaller uh, but also that they might be uh, the benefits might be much smaller too so it's, it's hard to see how remain uh, votes translates into a big positive tick for everybody it's it, it's it's unlikely to to resolve uh, all the problems that uh, have led us to this referendum in the first place it's unlikely to produce some kind of sea change in attitudes uh, you know it's not that suddenly people will suddenly love the EU in the UK well probably be that uh, cautious relationship that uh, has characterized the past uh, four decades of membership now uh, you know I, before I talk about the leave option it's worth thinking a little bit about the the small yes uh, majority scenario you know we just about get over the line uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure then for a revisit of the situation it's going to look much weaker the, the mandate looks much uh, thinner but i think largely uh, the government will take the view that a, a, rem a remain vote is a remain vote and we stick with it now by contrast i think there's probably going to be uh, a lot more question marks if you have a small uh, vote to leave and this might be a, a good point to to think about that that leave option if you have uh, a small, slender leave majority, or it comes on a very low turnout, which I think is looking less unlikely, but it's not inconceivable that you end up with just a very, you know, just shading over the line on leave. 
in that case, I think you're going to end up in a, in a holding pattern that rather than pursue uh, exit uh, negotiations, these Article 50 negotiations that we've talked about at different points, uh, I think you're going to find David Cameron's going to say, well, this is so close that it's not really a decision and uh, we need to go back and, and have a look again. Now, uh, I think you can imagine member states, other member states might say, well, okay, fine, uh, you can go and do that and we'll hold off because, you know, exceptionally this is just such a, a finely balanced thing. The difficulty will come if Cameron then goes back to his uh, fellow heads of state and government and says, you know what would really help? It'd be another concession. Can you just give me one more thing? Now, they might play along with that, but you also have to imagine uh, that uh, with an eye to their domestic electorates, uh, other member states are going to be really, really uncomfortable about uh, uh, doing that, that uh, you know, it then looks like an incredibly effective strategy for a country to pursue. To say, well, you know, just uh, you know, it looks like some kind of blackmail. To say, you know, if you don't give me what I want, then I, I'm off. So uh, there's a risk that Cameron might be rebuffed by uh, his uh, fellow leaders. In which case, we end up with something that's a much clearer leave uh, majority. Uh, and uh, you know Cameron would have to be very cautious on that. At the same time, it might be that even if he doesn't get concessions, uh, that if there is a, a big uh, economic shock to the system, you know, if uh, uh, Sterling falls off a cliff or just uh, jumps into a ditch, uh, something you know, smaller, but it's, you know, a clear negative downturn, uh, if businesses you know see a, a clear effect it might be that in the process of trying to work out how we go about this and you know moving towards maybe a second vote which I think you'd have to do in this scenario that enough people get scared about what's happening in that uncertain phase that you end up with uh, a clear pressure uh, and you can say look all that scaremongering we, we talked about actually it's real it's happening and uh, you have uh, you know a, a clear reason to, to step back in now, you know, if I were being cynical, I would say that, you know, Cameron would have uh, every incentive in that scenario to say, I'm going to let things go uh, wrong. I'm going to take the hit now because in the long run it's, it's better because it helps me uh, reach my uh, objective of, of securing a, a, a Remain majority. What's clear, though, is that any of these uh, options around a slender uh, leave vote look really risky. Uh, there's an awful lot that can go wrong, there's uh, an awful lot of things that can uh, not work out and I think there would have to be some very serious consideration about how that is played out and uh, one would uh, imagine that uh, uh, scenario planning has got to be a key activity in number 10 uh, these days, especially as we move towards the vote and we know a bit more uh, what might be the kind of outcome. Let's move then to the, 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 the big other area, which is a clear leave majority. You know, a, a vote that is unambiguous, that says we are not in favour of membership and we are leaving. In the process I've talked about elsewhere on the, uh, the Diet of Brussels uh, podcast, and I'm not going to, to get into detail of that, but essentially you would imagine that... Uh, Cameron would have to move 
fairly quickly into the, the formal process of the Article 50 negotiations about exit. So he's got, uh, once he notifies the European Union that he's leaving or that UK is leaving, there is then two years, so the clock starts ticking at that point. What uh, we, we looked at in the workshop was a distinction between a, a soft and a harsh Brexit. Uh, one where everyone's trying to make it work uh, and one where people start to not make it work and say, well, you know, if you're going to be like that, I'm going to be like this uh, and uh, creating uh, any number of problems. Now, uh, given the way the, the discussion went, actually we ended up, you know, kind of eliding those two uh, options together because it's quite hard really to to unpick uh, things. So let's think a little bit about the, the different elements and, and how they matter. Let's start with the, the politics of the situation, because I think that's the key driver. If you have a clear leave vote, then David Cameron looks like somebody who is not going to be staying in number 10 very long. Uh, if it's a very large uh, uh, leave vote, then he is going to be leaving almost immediately. The, the, his position becomes untenable uh, in the party and you're going through crash proceedings then to choose a new uh, leader quite what happens in the interim I don't really uh, want to, to think you know whether there's an interim leader or whether he's a caretaker uh, at this point uh, something like that but uh, certainly the Tory party will have to go through uh, its own uh, discussion about how it replaces uh, Cameron, uh, which potentially has an impact on how quickly we can move to negotiations. It might be saying, well, look, until we sort out who our leader is, we can't actually notify you because uh, that's the person who will actually have to do it. I think Cameron has always been clear that he prefers to stay in and he doesn't really want to be the man who took uh, the UK out. Uh, and. Uh, if he is that man, he doesn't want to be the man who negotiated the post-membership uh, deal. He'd like that to be somebody else's uh, legacy, if I can use that euphemism. So you're going to have big change in uh, the Conservative Party in the short term. Uh, as was being suggested uh, today, uh, it might not be a case of the Tory party splitting because there aren't actually that many pro uh, EU individuals before, so it might be a matter of simply of removing uh, Cameron and George Osborne uh, as kind of figureheads of the old uh, system. Uh, you know, Ken Clark, Michael Heseltine can be farmed out uh, pretty quickly. I mean, they're fairly uh, marginal figures in many ways within the party structure as it is, and you know, then everyone uh, pragmatically swings behind the the new regime. You might see impacts on uh, other political parties as well. It might be that then Jeremy Corbyn uh, can uh, move to what appears to be his more natural position, which is uh, opposing the EU and talking about how uh, we manage the, the exit process, so we protect workers' rights uh, and other things close to his heart. Um, but again, I, you know, he will adjust, and that potentially strengthens his position within the Labour Party. The interesting case, or one of the other interesting cases, is what happens to the UK Independence Party 
uh, is that then you know what's the purpose of the party that has made EU membership the the core of what it does that uh, it seems to rob uh, UKIP of some of its purpose even though it has broadened out in recent years it uh, makes it hard then for uh, Farage to, to speak about a system an establishment that doesn't listen to what the people say because very precisely it would have listened to what the people say so you might see that UKIP uh, has a, a difficult time of it even if it gets its uh, headline goal um, and I think they're going to go through a change. The other key party that matters, though, in a, a Leave scenario is uh, Scottish nationalists. That if you have the scenario that's often talked about, where Scotland votes to remain, uh, but the rest of the UK votes to leave, then we end up with this question about a second referendum. Uh, as I've suggested, uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago after the local elections, their failure to win a majority in Holyrood uh, this, uh, this month means that it's harder for them to make that argument. Um, and I think they will partly uh, uh, want to use it as a, a way of moving towards it, but I think that there will also be an interest in seeing uh, quite what the deal is that's uh, on offer, uh, because it might be that the uh, post-membership offer uh, that is made actually suits them well enough that uh, pushing for independence is not uh, such a, a burning priority. So I think that's an open question rather than uh, the slam dunk that it's often presented as. Economically, uh, for the UK, uh, there is a broad consensus amongst economists, and as economists, and I've met quite a few of them recently, keep on telling me it is very rare for economists to be consensual about uh, pretty much anything. Uh, and that consensus is that there will be uh, some substantial short-term costs uh, and there might be uh, some uh, substantial long-term costs. Let's think about the short-term economic costs. Um, essentially, uh, anything that uh, imposes more barriers to trade, such as leaving uh, uh, a single market uh, will raise costs, uh, will reduce economies of scale and as such will make it uh, harder uh, for the economy to grow and potentially imposes a, a, a cost on it. So we've got uh, scenarios that suggest that you will lose uh, several percentage points uh, of economic uh, growth uh, that you potentially move into uh, a recession, uh, that you will have the short-term disruption to exchange rates as uh, sterling will take a, a big hit, uh, certainly in the short run um, uh, for, from being out. There's the question around uh, reduction in foreign direct investment, and the UK is the the epicenter of uh, FDI in Europe because it's a gateway country to the EU. So, you know, we, we would expect that there would be a substantial hit on that. We would have uh, the City of London finding it hard to maintain its place because it would lose what are known as passporting rights, which allow it to operate uh, across uh, the EU. Um, so all of these things, even if not all of them happen, 
there are enough things that are likely to happen, and some of them are almost certain to happen, that you would expect that economically the UK would suffer in the short run uh, as we go along. Now, uh, to be clear, uh, that's not uh, to say that in the long run there isn't uh, a benefit uh, from uh, membership uh, ending that uh, the UK will not have uh, to make the budgetary compute, uh, contributions that it does at the moment to the EU, although this has been pointed out, you know, that, that might well be much smaller effect than uh, the, uh, the loss of uh, trade opportunities that exist. Uh, it might be that the UK is able to have uh, stronger trade links uh, with other parts of the world which might be economically beneficial but those are long run effects and uh, you know the, the problem that the economists keep on having is that we end up adding uh, counterfactual to counterfactual to well what happened about this, what happens about that, that we, we don't know how the EU will develop, uh, we don't know how the UK uh, and the world economy will develop. All of these things, you know, if we add things, we end up with more and more uncertainty. This goes back to this point I was making earlier, that the uncertainty around uh, uh, a Brexit scenario, about a leave scenario, is much, much larger than it is for Remain. Now, again, what that means is that the, the costs potentially are very, very substantial, but potentially the benefits are substantial too. But, you know, the only the only nuance I'd add to that is this point that I've made already, which is that uh, you know there is a, a consensus that in the short run there will be disruption, there will be transition costs, there will be uh, dislocation. Uh, you know that as whatever we move to as a, a scenario, we are going to have something different, and people are going to have to adjust, and that's going to cost time and effort, which uh, can't be devoted to uh, uh, to, to growing uh, economic performance. Now, where does that? leave us in terms of what the relationship looks like with the EU. I mean, we've gone around this uh, many, many times uh, on this podcast, and uh, I'd love to tell you it's all sorted, but very clearly it's not. One of the key points about the relationship between the UK and the EU is that it is not for the UK to decide what relationship it will have. It is for the rest of the EU to decide what it will offer to the UK, and then it is for the UK to decide, and try and negotiate a bit, uh, whether and how it will accept that or not. Now, um, my position is that um, negotiating something that's quite comprehensive is not necessarily as difficult as has been suggested, that in contrast to every other uh, relationship with a third country, you know, the Norwegian option, the Swiss option, the Albanian option, uh, the Canadian option, all those things. Those countries are not member states of the EU. Uh, they're about countries that are on the outside that want to come closer in. And so they've got to make changes so they look more like the EU, in effect. By contrast, the UK is in. It looks like the other member states because it is a member state. And so what we're talking about then is, well, we're, you're already here, what are the things you want to give up, you know, and is that consistent and robust? And so that might be uh, 
something which leads to uh, a system that looks more like, say, a Norwegian option, which has tended to be uh, shunned as being too complicated. Now, this is the, the real challenge. You know, what does the, the no, uh, you know, a leave vote uh, mean? And I use air quotes uh, when I'm uh, uh, using mean here. If we assume that most people are not very invested in the detail of it, that they're, it's more an emotional thing, that we don't want to be part of the EU, but we like some of the, you know, like the benefits that come with it, then it might be that a Norwegian option is one that is actually not as uh, unacceptable as you might imagine that uh, you'd end up with something that looks like the, the politics of the Norwegian situation rather than the economics, which is that the Norway in many ways looks like a member state. It pays in money, it's got access to the single market, a lot of the programs, it pays for all those things. You know, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's got that. Norwegians are, as a population, seemingly happy with that. They don't want to join the EU. They don't seem dissatisfied with the arrangement. Norwegian politicians, on the other hand, seem to be really not very happy that, you know, they're, they, they're the ones who recognise that they don't have much influence, but, you know, politically, there isn't the will uh, or the capacity to try and convince Norwegians, you know, well, if we just added a little bit more, we could be in and then we'd have a voice uh, and a vote and that'd be better. So even though, you know, we point out lots of difficulties in the Norwegian model, it's one which is persistent. It's, you know, it's stayed there for a long time and will stay like that for the foreseeable future. So you might end up with uh, sceptics, outers who are, uh, you know, a bit more pragmatic and flexible. They say, well, okay, we've got the headline goal of exit and, okay, yeah, we're still largely in it. But people will accept that, you know, we can dress it up in a rhetoric that says this is something that looks like uh, uh, we have control over it. And uh, even if in practice, you know, we don't have that much. And that it's harder then for those who are the more uh, hardcore uh, Eurosceptics, ones who really don't want to be involved in the single market, uh, who don't want to have anything more than minimal cooperation with the EU, it becomes harder for them to convince people that there's something in their case. Now, by contrast, you might say, well, you know, it's very difficult for everyone to reach an agreement. There's this two-year time limit on Article 50. If we can't agree by then, then the UK falls out and we fall back onto the sort of default position, which is the, the World Trade Organization uh, and the, the, the rights that that guarantees. Now, that's not necessarily so uh, radically different, but it means that you lose uh, uh, a considerably larger degree of market access compared to the, the, the kind of Norwegian-esque uh, uh, model. Uh, and as I say that, I see a Norwegian air uh, plane uh, roll past me on the, uh, the apron, uh, purely conveniently. Um, if you have that World Trade Organization uh, option, you know, where we can't find a political agreement, uh, where uh, we end up going back to sort of the, uh, the, the least uh, engaged kind of relationship you can imagine, then economically we'd expect there to be larger costs, uh, but paradoxically it also gives more political freedom in terms of concluding free trade agreements and things like that. And we can get into discussion 
maybe another time about you know how likely those scenarios are as, as far as we go. Now this is a bit where we get into the soft, harsh uh, scenario options that I mentioned before. That uh, on one hand we are assuming that member states, including the UK, have an interest in finding a negotiated agreement, and that as such they might extend the amount of time uh, needed. That uh, you know they're not going to hurry into something. On the other hand. We've got to remember that there are going to be some substantial effects economically and politically for the EU, and there are some good incentives for them to not give a very good deal. So let's think a little bit about the EU level uh, and the effect of a, a clear UK uh, vote to leave. If uh, the UK leaves, then for existing member states, as I've suggested, there isn't necessarily good incentive to, to reach an accommodating deal for the UK, you know, to give them everything they want, because then it merely suggests to their own uh, uh, populations that this might be a much better way of managing things. Why do we have to, you know, be in, the, in this club if we can just leave or threaten to leave and we suddenly get given? It's the point, problem I, I mentioned with uh, uh, the remain uh, option uh, beforehand. So uh, member states are going to certainly talk tough, um, potentially play tough. Uh, remember that there are uh, very difficult uh, general elections coming up in France uh, next year. Uh, later on, you've got the French, uh, the German federal elections, which are less tough, but you know you can see possibility for disruption. So you know there's always got to be an eye on the domestic political scene. In addition we've got to remember that the, the EU is not the EU, it is 27 other member states, and they've got very different positions. Uh, if we think about the uh, most critical example, the Irish government is very, very concerned indeed about Brexit, because economically, socially, politically, culturally, it is very closely tied to the UK. And if the UK leaves, that is very, very bad for the Irish economy. Uh, you know, the figures that we were discussing today were suggesting that uh, Ireland might take something like two-thirds, three-quarters of the hit uh, that the UK suffers. So very substantial impacts on something that is not Ireland's choice, uh, that it has no control over, except for those Irish citizens who happen to vote in uh, the referendum who are living in the UK. The Irish economy is very exposed, then that also makes Irish politicians very exposed to Brexit. And so, again, they might be wanting uh, to uh, ensure that uh, the disruption to uh, their economy is minimised, that uh, there is, uh, well, you know, you might imagine that they might say, well, we want to impose a very severe penalty in the UK. Uh, by way of uh, uh, retribution or, uh, or balance. So the interests of the Irish government are not going to be the same necessarily as that of, I don't know, uh, the Maltese government or the Finnish government, uh, who might be relatively accommodating to, to British concerns. And that matters because any deal has to be approved by all the member states, uh, it's going to be approved by the European Parliament, who are going to be potentially a very awkward and tricky uh, partner uh, in these negotiations. 
Uh, and then also the UK needs to, to sign up to these uh, too. So there are lots of uh, difficulties, lots of scope for things to, to not work politically uh, and indeed economically, that as there is the unwinding of uh, UK membership, then that creates opportunities for uh, the uh, economies of the remaining member states to potentially take advantage of that. You know, a lot of interest from financial centres like uh, Frankfurt or uh, Amsterdam or Paris to try and uh, replace the UK as the centre of the European market. That, you know, is something which will be a, a very fluid and dynamic situation and is partly going to be shaped by the nature of the agreement, partly going to be shaped by market forces which uh, might well run ahead of the, the politics of the situation, particularly if we're talking about something that's going to take a couple of years, maybe longer. Uh, markets move much more quickly uh, than that and uh, they're going to be trying to uh, establish facts on the ground that help uh, to encourage politicians to, to choose what uh, to do. Now, uh, you know, one of the, the big questions that comes up, and it certainly comes up on the, the Leave camp, is that the UK economy is not insubstantial, that it uh, is an attractive uh, market to uh, the rest of the EU, and that as such there will be a strong interest on the part of those uh, other member states to maintain a, a positive and open uh, relationship. Now, I think there's there's a lot to be said for that, but uh, uh, we also need to remember that the uh, UK uh, is a much smaller percentage of the rest of the EU's uh, exports than the rest of the EU is uh, as a percentage of UK exports, which means that uh, 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 probably at best what it means is that the terms of the economic access are going to be set by the EU to suit EU uh, uh, economic actors rather than to suit uh, the interests of uh, UK uh, producers. So we might well see a, a sort of differentiated patterns that some uh, sectors of the economy do well, others do less well, uh, and that's going to be true on both the European and the, uh, on the UK sides. In terms of looking at the, the impact on the EU, uh, we think needs to think a little bit more about the, the politics and the kind of strategic development system. It might be that uh, Brexit is the trigger for many bad things to happen, that this is the start of the system falling apart, if you like. And you know, Certainly some Remain uh, Leave campaigners have suggested this is precisely the intention, that it might increase pressure on the Eurozone, to eject Greece, it might be that other member states want to leave, uh, uh, Sweden has been suggested as maybe another candidate, you know, ambivalent population, not in the Euro, uh, short membership uh, history, uh, changing uh, balanced trade once the UK is out. You know, it's not impossible to conceive that other countries might uh, go and do this, that the system basically can't deliver anything of benefit to its citizens and as such uh, falls apart or falls uh, into a looser arrangement where it's uh, functionally uh, irrelevant. 
The other interpretation, which was an interesting one, which I, I haven't really thought about much, is that Brexit might act as a kind of shock therapy. That it might be that it helps resolve and clarify. It might be good for the UK. It might, you know, help it to to, to get onto a clearer track, know what its role is in the world. Um, but it might also help the uh, EU. You know, say, okay, well, we've dealt with the UK. Uh, we're going to deal with some other problems now. You know, we don't have to worry about accommodating the British. It means we can be clearer about pursuing Eurozone uh, reform, about pursuing um, macroeconomic agendas, uh, different policies. You know, we can deal with the migration a bit more easily. Uh, all of these things uh, might suddenly become more possible, partly because we don't have to accommodate the British partly because there's now a sense of, well, actually, uh, we need to get going because we can't risk the system falling apart. Now, where we end up between those two, I think, is, is too hard to say. But it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not clear that uh, the UK leaving has to be unambiguously uh, bad uh, or indeed unambiguously good for... Uh, 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 all those who are involved, that it might be that it's uh, something which uh, contains good developments uh, and indeed bad developments, and you can judge good and bad however you want. What's interesting, though, is about the, the, the wider geopolitics. Uh, the UK leaving potentially places it in a difficult place in the world. You know, what's it trying to achieve? Um, one of today's suggestions was that uh, the UK becomes like Canada. Uh, it's, uh, you know, everyone loves Canada. Uh, it's nice, it does nice things, and it's, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, a semi-detached uh, power next to uh, a big geopolitical actor. So, you know, Canada's next to the US, the UK would be next to the EU. You know, the differences would still be there, you know, the, the nuclear weapons, the permanent uh, seat on the Security Council, uh, all of those kind of things. Uh, but it would be like Canada, and, uh, you know, that would be nice. Um, whether it's possible or not is a, a slightly different uh, uh, question. But, you know, cutting off uh, EU uh, ties might not mean that the UK becomes a, a detached partner uh, in European circles that it still would have an interest in being involved in uh, security policy, foreign policy broadly constructed uh, that it would still have NATO as a, a vehicle uh, for uh, cooperation and interaction um, and that there's no reason for that uh, necessarily to be stopped uh, because it can't because uh, it's not an EU member anymore so you could see that there might be paths there. Um, at the same time, you can clearly see that there are risks, that uh, the presumed uh, desire of Vladimir Putin to see the UK out is grounded in an understanding that uh, uh, the EU would be divided, the UK, uh, Europe would be divided, and that would make it easier for, their, for the, the Russians to to achieve uh, their own foreign policy goals. And I talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago in a, in a uh, Diet of Brussels podcast. If you want to listen to that, you can go to www.dietofbrussels.com uh, and track that down. I think I was a bit dubious about what uh, Putin might actually do rather than uh, 
think, um, but still, the, the capacity is there. Certainly the big challenge is, is that Brexit doesn't have uh, immediately good optics in the geopolitical world, that it, it looks like a, a failure of uh, the system, it looks like a system that's uh, falling apart rather than falling together, um, and all of those things which are true internally also potentially have consequences externally. Now that might be beneficial, it might be that you know, it clarifies the purpose of both the UK and the EU internationally, but it might also be something which is confusing and unattractive to international partners. Where does this all leave us? Well, I think, you know, if I'm going to think about this in concluding terms, I think I've got three main points I'd, I'd want you to think about. One is that necessarily scenarios for any of these options are uncertain. That we don't know for sure what will happen in the future. That's uh, the beauty and the tragedy of it all, that there is always going to be uncertainty. The thing that we can say though is that the uncertainty around remaining is substantially less than the uncertainty around leaving. That uh, we can state with more confidence what things look like uh, because they will look like what we have now. Uh, that kind of stickiness of institutions and of practice, you know, that we, we you know, it's not a radical change. Uh, it looks much less likely in the uh, absence of this big change that would be uh, the UK leaving. So we, we can say that there is uh, that difference in the uns degree of uncertainty that we have. Now, that plays both ways. It means that uh, leave is the safe option, uh, and you can see that as a good thing or as a bad thing. And certainly y you can look to the leave campaign to see people who say who are very boosterish about saying, well, you know, everything can go right and this will be a very good thing for the UK. Uh, likewise, uh, you can find people who will say that this will be a very bad thing for the UK. In a way that you tend not to see for the Remain campaign is say, well, it will be bad for the UK to, to stay in, or it will be all right for the UK to stay in. It's, you know, it's a kind of deg degree of, uh, uh, a question of degree rather than of uh, absolute benefit, absolute get, uh, cost. So that's the first point, is that there is going to be this uncertainty that uh, hangs around whatever we do. Second point is that we can't think about this as a purely economic or as a political question. It's a mixture of the two. If there's one thing that we've seen so far in this referendum, it's that rational economic arguments don't get very far, particularly with the public, that if you want to make the argument, you've also got to appeal to the head. Now, uh, key problem with the, the economic modelling is that it doesn't take account of the, pol the political situation that's going to apply, particularly if we think about leave, but I think also true for, for Remain, is the thing that's going to really shape things are the political choices that are made, that are made by a British government, that are made by other European governments who uh, will respond to not necessarily very rational signals about what their public's 
uh, seem to be demanding, how they can best achieve that to very kind of uh, contingent situations that uh, are liable to change and to shift. So if we want to understand the situation, we can't just think about it in terms of uh, a, a sh- spreadsheet of costs and uh, of benefits that it's also going to be about uh, emotions it's going to be about attitudes that are much more nebulous uh, as we go along the third point I think uh, I'd want you to to take from this is that there is no uh, predetermination in this and it's a, a kind of a consequence of the other two points is that uh, the options that we face, the scenarios that we face, are they give us some suggestions, they give us some guidance of things we might think about, things that might be relevant, but they're not the determiners of what will happen. To a very considerable degree, you as a voter, you as somebody who is making a decision and input into the political system, hold the power in your hand that, uh, as I've referred to several times in this uh, podcast uh, series Um, you know the referendum doesn't in of itself solve anything it it answers a question that is not about what are we trying to achieve it's about whether we should be in or out of this system and when you're making your choice I think it's really helpful you to think about well what do you want that uh, choice to mean what do you want it to look like I can finish with a very prosaic and uh, uh, anecdotal uh, insight. Uh, when I wasn't doing all of these trips uh, around uh, Europe, uh, I was in my garden the other weekend. I was cutting the lawn, and my neighbour was uh, washing his car, all very suburban. And uh, my neighbour wanted to talk to me about the referendum, uh, which was nice. Uh, and he said that he wanted to actually have a, a third option on the ballot paper, which was to vote for a, a completely reformed EU. Now, uh, expert uh, negotiators that I am, I managed to deflect that question, but uh, uh, clearly, you know, one of the challenges is, well, what does he mean? You know, what does that completely reformed EU look like? That's partly a question for politicians to decide, but it's also a question for you to decide, that the clearer we are about what we want to achieve, what we want to be as a country, uh, what we want our our policies to look like, then the more chance we have that we can articulate that to uh, our representatives and that we can get that actually uh, happening in effect. So I hope that's useful as a set of scenarios uh, of what might happen. Um, we might well come back with another one of these uh, Diet of Cabbage uh, extended pieces, probably not from Barcelona Airport because I've not been invited back uh, yet. Um, But uh, as always, if you've got questions, uh, then just please go to the website www.adiatofbrussels.com, get in touch, and I'm happy to help wherever possible. Adios.